Well, this morning we are in the second part of our series called Following Jesus, where we're studying the book of Colossians. And today I want to start off by telling you a story that happened right after I graduated from college. Leanne and I were married, and we were hoping, dreaming that we would be able to go overseas. We ended up working at a missionary school in Venezuela. But before we could go, we had to go to this thing called Candidate School where we basically went for three weeks and got absolutely grilled in who we were to make sure that we could handle being overseas, working as missionaries, but that also they could train us in a sense and prepare us for what we were going to be doing. Well, there was about a seven-week window between graduation and candidate school, and Leanne and I, we kind of needed money, so we decided to look for some jobs. And the job that God provided for me was working for a landscaper. I tell you, it was really glamorous. I got to mow lawns. I got to weed flower beds. I got to put rock down, plant grass. I mean, really cool stuff. Probably the coolest part was the uh, landscaper also owned a blueberry orchard. And so I got to help with the blueberry harvest and sort through. And my pay at the end of the day was sometimes to take home a bunch of blueberries. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. It was awesome. But one day, my boss pulled me aside and said, hey, you're going to help me install an in-lawn sprinkler system. And it was out at this business. And all day long, it was a gorgeous summer day, and all day long, the president of the company kept coming out. I think he was coming out to check on us, but really, he had two excuses. He wanted to get outside, and he also liked Ben. Ben and him had known each other for years, so he'd just come out and start chatting with us as we're laying this, you know, in-lawn sprinkler system. Well, at the end of the day, Ben is giving the—Ben, by the way, is my boss. Ben is giving uh, instructions to the maintenance guys— telling them how to operate the sprinkler system. And the president feels that he should be involved in this conversation too, just so he knew what was going on. Somehow in that conversation, Ben mentions that me, the little lackey on the job, is planning to be a missionary. The president of the company lights up and he says, I'm an ordained pastor. In fact, let me go get my diploma. And he runs inside. I thought this is really odd. But we start picking up all of our tools. We're putting everything on the truck. And sure enough, within about two minutes, the president comes walking out. And he's got this framed diploma that had some seminary name on it and Masters of Divinity. And I'm thinking, wow, great. Now, I heard the guy cussing up a storm earlier. So I was kind of doubting everything. But, you know, hey, all right, you're an ordained pastor. All right. Ben and I get back in the truck. We start driving away. And Ben looks at me and says, Aaron, you realize his diploma was fake. I'm like, Really? Now, this is way back when the internet was in its infancy. And so this guy had to get this fake diploma the old-fashioned way, by mail. Like, he actually ordered it, sent in money, and they ship him back this fake seminary diploma. Maybe so he could perform a wedding. Maybe, I don't know why. Maybe it was just a practical joke. Who knows? But he had this fake diploma. Nowadays... You can go online and find one of 350 different degree mills where they will churn out a diploma for you. You can go and you can pick your major. You can get an emphasis. You could even go and get a doctorate in something. You know, this week I was looking and I'm, I'm thinking, hey, I could collect, you know, two, three, four doctorates. This could be a lot of fun. This is a big business. Last year alone in 2017, it is estimated that over 200,000 fake degrees were granted. Now, the price of those can range anywhere from $200 to about $2,000. But let's just say, just, I don't think this is really what it is, but let's just say it's $500 is the average. 
$500 times 200,000 of these fake diplomas given out, you're talking a $100 million industry. There's a lot of money to be made in the fake degree industry. However, what is your opinion of someone when you find out that they put on their resume a fake degree? Uh, yeah, some of you just showed me a thumbs down. Like, you, you don't trust them. You don't respect them. You, you feel like they're lying to you, like they're trying to pull some sort of con. It's like, you don't just see the degree as fake. You see them as fake. That, that's why we're not impressed when someone comes running out of their office saying, look, I have a diploma, when you find out that it's fake. Because we all know to really get the diploma, to really get the degree, you have to earn it. As I look around this room, I see people who have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees. There's even a few of you that have doctorates. You did not just go online, order the degree, and then ship it to you, you know, 24 hours later. Like, you went to school, and you went to 101, and 201, and 301, and 401, and 1001. I mean, you went to class upon class upon class. And then you spent tens of thousands of dollars so that you could walk across a stage with a cap and a gown and be handed a piece of paper. Like, you earned that thing. And so for someone to just show you a fake diploma and claim it's real, it just feels wrong. It's it's just too easy. I think this mentality that you got to earn your degree has slipped into religion. For instance, if you were to go and study Scientology, you would see that they had these different divinities. And to move up within the divinities, you have to do this auditing, this training. And, and you work your way up until, I don't know what they call their highest level. But it takes a lot of money. It's like earning a degree within Scientology. Or take Mormonism, for instance. They have what they call their saving ordinances. And some of them, you've got to do one and then the other, then the other. Like there's this progression of these ordinances. And you have to do those in order to be saved. If you don't do them, you can't go to the highest heaven that Mormons claim exists. I think the same mentality also slips into Christianity. There have been people that I've met who they've had their eyes opened to the gospel. They understand that Jesus' death on a cross was for the forgiveness of their sins, and they get all excited, but they feel as if that was like class 101. And now they're starting to ask, well, so what's next? Like, what do I need to do, do now? Like, there's got to be a 201 and a 301, right? We've got to add to this. This is just the beginning. And what we're going to see today is, is Paul, in the book of Colossians, is going to be saying, no, 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 no. Don't add to it. You don't have to go through 201 or 301 or 401. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to continue with Jesus. If gospel is, is Jesus class 101, then it is plumbing deeper and deeper and deeper into this one class. Because as you continue with Jesus, God does his work on you to make you more and more like Jesus so that you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So Heavenly Father, as we get ready to open up the scriptures and look at the, these words that you inspired Paul to write down, not only for the believers that were in Colossae in the first century, but also to us, anyone who is a believer here today, and so, Father, I pray that ultimately you would be the speaker, you would be the teacher, you would, would take your word and penetrate it into the hearts and minds of the people that you've gathered here. Uh, Father, these people, they're all over the place spiritually. 
And, and I pray that, that, they would help, that you would help them see that you love them just as they are, but you love them too much to let them remain where they are. And that today, through your scriptures and through the words you put on my lips, that you would challenge us to go deeper with you and to become more and more like your son. And so, Father, this time is yours. Do in us what you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, if you are a first-time visitor with us, we at Riverwood do not mind if you have a paper copy or a digital copy. We just want you to have a copy of the Scripture. So if you're like me and want to go old-fashioned, we've got two different translations on the back table. After our worship gathering, totally feel free to stop back there and pick up one. We'll find the one that will fit you best if you will use it. If you have a smartphone, we encourage you to download a Bible. There's several free ones out there. We recommend the Version Bible app because it has multiple translations. Some of those translations have audio uh, with it so you can listen to it if that's a great way to learn. And there's a few other tools in there as well. So we recommend that. So Colossians uh, chapter 2, our key verses today are going to be verses 6 and 7. So join me in Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Now, last week when we kicked this series off, we looked back at the very beginning. And we saw in chapter, I mean, sorry, in verse 2 of chapter 1, we saw that this was being written to the saints and faithful brothers. We, we saw that that word brothers could also be translated brothers and sisters. So this is to the saints, to the faithful brothers and sisters who are in Christ. In other words, this is being written to people who have not only heard the gospel, but they have believed it and received it. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, how does a person receive Christ? It's through the gospel. So then notice what he says next. So as you receive Christ, so walk in him. In other words, continue with the gospel. Another way to say walk in him is to live in him, to live out the gospel. Because if you continue with Jesus, this is what happens. Verse 7. You will become rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Have you ever been around someone who was just seemed really, really wise? They just seemed really godly. And you just found yourself like wanting to soak in anything and everything you could from them. So often they became that way, not because they, they went to all these different subjects and that. Usually because they just went really deep with Jesus. And as you get around them, you start realizing they soaked in so much Jesus that as you're around them, Jesus just kind of leaks out. Paul is saying, don't try to add to your faith. Continue in your faith. Continue through the gospel. Continue through Jesus. Because Paul knows that there are all sorts of things that are going to knock you off this path. Think about it. For me to stand up here and say, hey, it's easy. Just believe. It, it, it almost sounds like I'm saying, hey, download this fake diploma. And yet, to continue with Jesus is sometimes one of the most difficult things you can do. Because there are all sorts of things that happen in life that will try to get you away from it. If you're continuing down this path, it's going to come in and try and bludger you off, trying to, to get you to go a different way. And, and, and they're going to make it sound really good, going to make it sound wise, that we're going to see some of that today. So Paul, he's going to address these various things that try and get you off this path. And the first one that he addresses is struggle. We see this back in chapter 1, verse 24. Last week, we ended in verse 23. So I want to pick it up in 24. 
So Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now if I am absolutely honest with you, this verse used to make me incredibly uncomfortable. I used, to, I used to hate it. I used to, like, try and skim past it. Like, even as I knew I was going to be teaching on this today, I could feel some of the old mentality about this verse. Like, yeah, this is the kind of verse you just kind of skim past and move on. Why was I so uncomfortable with it? Because of that phrase right in the middle, that in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You see, the more I study the Scripture, the more in awe of the gospel I become. And the more I study the gospel, the more I see and believe that the death of Jesus on the cross was absolutely sufficient in everything, that it lacks nothing. And so for Paul to sit there and say, yeah, I'm filling up in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions, makes me think, okay, either I don't understand this verse or I don't understand the gospel. And so I want to walk you through what I did to try and come to a place where I think I know what Paul is trying to say here. And it involves context. As I'm your pastor, I'm regularly talking about, you got to put it in context. It, one of the fastest ways to end up in heresy is to take a verse out of its context and just run with it. Because you can start to make it say whatever you want it to. But when you start to embed it back into the context, and you start seeing what are the verses around it. And then what does it mean within the book or within the letter itself? Or what does it mean in the light of all that Scripture teaches us? Because if we believe this is the Word of God, God is going to be consistent through the whole thing. So when we hit something that we go, whoa, I don't understand. All right, let's put it in the context right where it's at as well as in the whole thing. And then occasionally you need to also go and look at, okay, what was going on at the time? Put it in cultural context. So here's what I did. First, I decided, all right, I'm going to put it in the context of what is surrounding it. And I noticed back up in verse 20, a verse we looked at last week a little bit. It says in verse 19, it talked about how God was pleased to, to dwell in Christ. So verse 20, it's basically saying that God is pleased to, through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there it is. You see that through the cross, God uses it to reconcile to himself all things. Which means the cross really is sufficient. The cross is enough. So that means, okay, Aaron, if, if the cross really is enough, maybe you're misunderstanding verse 24. So I go back down to verse 24, looking at it carefully. And I see Christ's afflictions, but then I notice it says, for the sake of his body. Now, as I came to that, my mind's thinking of the, the afflictions of Christ and, and his suffering and his body. And suddenly I'm thinking of, you know, the, his back being ripped to shred by the, the lashes. That's what we're going to commemorate on Good Friday. It, the crown of thorns being jammed on his head and the blood now running down. The nails through the wrists and the feet. Like the whole horrific R-rated scene comes to my head and my mind. And yet that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the physical body of Jesus. He's talking about the spiritual body. Because he defines it right there in his body. That is the church. Over and over in Paul's letters, he talks about the church as being the body of Christ. If you think about Paul's original call to follow Jesus, it makes sense why he would view it that way. If you're not familiar with Paul's story, Paul 
used to travel around trying to persecute any Jew who proclaimed Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. He, he thought that they were wrecking Judaism. And so in his zeal for his faith, he, he's basically saying, all right, we got to stop you. And so he would arrest them. They'd go on trial. And if they got thrown in prison or even if they died, it was good. It was for the purity and protection of Judaism. And so he even received letters from kind of the legal authorities in Jerusalem to head off to the city named Damascus, where he was going to arrest anyone who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. And here's what happens. This takes place in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Now, as he, Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if we were to go on from that, we would see Paul basically say, who are you? He's never seen this guy before. And the guy reveals himself as Jesus. Now, wait, Paul's never met Jesus before. First of all, Paul didn't think Jesus really existed. He didn't think he rose from the dead. I mean, he had heard the stories, but he really thought that it's all a big lie. It's a fabrication. Now, suddenly he realizes, I'm wrong. It's true. Jesus really is the Son of God. I mean, he's just appeared to me suddenly here on the road. He didn't walk up to me. He's like in this blinding light. His voice probably sounds overwhelming. And Paul suddenly realizes, oh my goodness, I've been wrong this whole time. Jesus really did die on a cross and rise from the dead. And I'm now standing here talking to him. But notice what Jesus said to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul could have responded, what do you mean persecuting you? Like, no, 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 I'm trying to arrest all these Jesus followers. Ding, the light goes on. Because the body of Christ, when you persecute, when you bring suffering to the church, it's Jesus himself who feels the suffering. Which means that if you are a part of the church, you also feel, Jesus also feels the suffering. If we were to continue back there in Colossians, and we saw down in verse 25, you would see that Paul refers to himself as a minister of the church, which means he's a leader of the church, but he's also a part of the church. Anyone been watching March Madness? Okay, yeah, several hands. Austin's was the first one up. I'm not surprised. Uh, he told me all about his bracket as we passed out the door hangers around Shell Rock on Thursday. I personally have been watching March Madness, the wrestling, because that's a far better sport. Uh, it's far more impressive. Um, but on March Madness, there's coaches who are on the sideline, and they're yelling in the plays, telling the guys what to do. They're, they're, they play a very, very necessary role, but they're not in the game. Paul was not like a coach on the sidelines, just yelling at the Colossians, hey, here's what I think you need to do. No, he's more like the point guard who's dribbling the ball down the, the court, and he's saying, all right, guys, run this play. Here's what we're going to do. And then he passes the ball. He's in the game. Paul was a part of the body. He's a minister of the church. And so what I think he's saying is that as a minister of the church, as a part of the body of Christ, when I suffer, when I go through affliction, Christ goes through affliction. He feels it too. Paul knows that struggle is going to come. It's going to try and knock you off the path of following Jesus. The response is, though, what are you going to do when that suffering comes? Because notice what Paul does. Back in Colossians 2, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, the very first phrase there in 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Seriously? 
Who in their right mind rejoices in suffering? I mean, I don't think Paul's clicking completely. Actually, Paul's clicking far better than I ever will. Why in the world could he say he rejoices in his suffering? Because as he goes through suffering, he starts to understand the suffering that Jesus went through. The most important thing to Paul is Jesus and the gospel. And the gospel says that our sin was so horrible, it kept us separated from God. We were spiritually dead. And without God's intervention, we would remain eternally separated. But Jesus came down, took the penalty for us, and then gives us his righteousness. Jesus went through the lashings on the back, the crown of thorns on the heads, the nails in the wrist, the mockery, all of it. He suffered grotesquely for you, for me, and for Paul. And so when Paul started going through suffering, he'd almost, it's almost like he looked at Jesus going, Jesus, is this what you went through? Actually, Jesus, you went through worse. And so when I suffer, it helps me understand more, Jesus, of how much you love me, of what you went through for me. That's why he could rejoice in the sufferings, because it was helping him to see Jesus even clearer. I am nowhere near like that. When I start suffering, I want to run to a movie. I want to run to entertainment. I want to run to leisure. I just want to escape from it. I know other people, they, they run to food, or they'll, they'll run to work. They run to their hobby. They'll, they'll run to certain drink or certain substances. They run to these things, trying to find escape from the pain. Instead, Paul's saying, when suffering comes, continue with Jesus. Lean into him even more, because that suffering, when it comes in, is going to help you identify with Jesus even more clearly. So when suffering comes... I'm going to encourage you, continue with Jesus. Lean more into the gospel. If this is your identity, if you claim to be a Jesus follower, then when this comes, rather than shaking your fists at God, may you open your hands to God. Because he's in control, he's got you, and he's going to carry you through this. So continue with Jesus. But sometimes, to continue with Jesus, we think we have to move on to like Jesus class 201 or 301. And that's what Paul addresses next. First, he addresses religious tradition. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is saying, hey guys, there's going to be some thoughts, some things that are going to sound really good, and you're going to want to adopt them. You're going to want to take them on because they're going to pressure you to do this because it's what religious tradition has always held. And so it's going to seem like, all right, we've got Jesus, but you know, I think we also need to add this on. In, in Paul's day, one of the biggest controversies that they were wrestling with was the topic of circumcision. Look at verse 11. In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you go back into Acts chapter 15, you'll see a big like kerfuffle blow up 
And there's all this discussion and dialogue about circumcision. Certain Jewish leaders were saying, no, 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 no. I, I think Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but we've had circumcision for a long, long, long time. In fact, it's come all the way from Abraham. And to, in order to be a Jew, you had to be circumcised. It's one of the things that marked a Jewish male as being very different than the Gentiles around. And so because that had been such a part of their, their history, and, and that, that if you're going to really follow God, to be obedient, if you're going to be saved, oh, sure, you need Jesus, you need this Messiah, but you also have to be circumcised. <laughs> but Paul and Barnabas, who'd been out traveling around sharing the gospel, had seen some Gentiles who had not been circumcised, Received Jesus. Like, they saw all the evidence of it. They believed the gospel. Many of them began to speak in other languages as a sign that they'd been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like, God was moving and working among the Gentiles, yet they hadn't been circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas are standing in front of this group going, whoa, time out. No, you don't have to be circumcised because look at what we've seen. We're not trying to turn people into Jews. We're trying to turn people into followers of Jesus. That same mentality was starting to spread around, and Paul feared it was going to come into the church in Colossae. And that they would start thinking like, oh, 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 okay, in order for us to really follow Jesus, okay, we accept him, we, we receive him, but now we've got to add this on. We've we got to do this too. And he's saying, no, don't. Don't take it on. It's going to feel smart. It's going to feel spiritual. It's going to feel great, but it's not going to accomplish what you think it will. Don't add this you just continue with Jesus, continue with the gospel. I think we sometimes make um, a very similar mistake in our own faith. It, it just feels too easy to just say, oh, con continue with Jesus. And, and there's something in us that wants to earn our Jesus degree. That, like, so we can somehow graduate into heaven. For some people, it, it's adding something on like baptism. I, I'm a big, big, big proponent of baptism. I believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be baptized. But one of my really good high school friends, he and I would have arguments about this doctrine because he believed you had to be baptized in order to be saved. That, yeah, 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 believe in Jesus. You have to have Jesus, but now you've got to go and get dunked. And if you aren't, you're not coming in. And, and my fear was always that what that ends up doing is it causes you to rely on your baptism. So that you could walk into heaven and go, here I am. Here's my baptismal certificate. you got to let me in. It, Ephesians chapter 2 says that it is not by works that you can be saved. Why? So that no one can boast. It is only by the grace of God. It is only by placing our faith in Jesus that we can be saved. And so if you find yourself trusting in baptism— or trusting in taking communion, or trusting in how much you read the Bible. I actually had a guy in college, I wasn't a good friend, just a, an acquaintance, but he actually was addicted to reading his Bible. He was actually ignoring his college homework. He was even ignoring eating and showering so that he could read his Bible, because if he didn't read enough, God would get mad at him, and God would thrust him out of his kingdom. He was trusting in his works instead of in Christ. Paul is saying, no, don't. Don't add these things like circumcision or baptism or Bible study. These, some of these things can be good things, but don't put your trust in them. Your trust is to be in Jesus and in Jesus alone. But there was more than just the controversy of circumcision, this religious tradition. There were also these religious practices that were being taught to them. Skip down to verse 16. 
Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food of uh, I'm sorry in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and if you ever um met someone who was a passionate vegan or vegetarian? No one? Wow, I'm glad for you. Uh, okay, a couple, couple headshot uh, shakes there. I've met some, and I'm happy for them. Like, they found something that really works for them. They feel great. It fe- you know, they feel healthy. Like, this is, this is really good for them. But some people, they, they seem to cross this line of, this is good for me, and it, should, it, it becomes... You have to do this too. And so if they find out that you actually enjoyed a burger last week, they look at you as if you are destined for hell. Like you have to have this diet. That's what was starting to come into the Colossians. These people who believed that you had to eat certain foods or you had to abstain from certain drinks or you had to observe certain festivals or you had to worship certain angels. You had to do these certain things in order for you to be saved. It was like going on to class 201 or 301. He's, they're saying you got to do these things as well. And Paul is warning them about it. In fact, he says this down in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, it's going to sound good, It's going to make you feel really, really spiritual, but there's no value. It doesn't actually accomplish what you think it accomplishes. Remember years ago, hearing a pastor named Erwin McManus share a story that when he and his wife Kim got married, he decided to take the ascetic life. They were going to go without. He thought this would make them more holy. And so one of the things he decided that they would go without was a bed. And Kim protested. But Erwin stood his ground. No, we don't need a bed. There are people all around the world who sleep on dirt floors. We can do this too, and this will make us holier. Kim decided, all right, we'll go with it. I'm just going to pray for a bed. So every morning she'd lay out the sheets. She'd make their bed on the floor. And Erwin just felt really holy. And man, isn't God so impressed? But then God began to answer Kim's prayer through Erwin's back. Turns out sleeping on the floor really wasn't very good for him and his back and his posture and pain. And he started complaining. And he found out that maybe a bed would be good for them. Well, then a guy in their church came up and said, Erwin, I've heard you guys don't have a bed. I run a warehouse, mattress warehouse. I would love for you guys to come and just pick any bed you want. It'll be my gift to you. Erwin said he strutted into that warehouse, now wanting the absolute best, most expensive mattress that was possible to get. You see, sleeping on the floor hadn't rooted out the selfishness in his heart. He thought he was somehow really impressing God. But now when he was presented with this opportunity, oh yeah, give me, I'm going to take, I'm going to get. Forcing yourself to go without doesn't get you what you want. I remember one time, uh, this is after I was a landscaper, but before Leanne and I went to Venezuela, we were actively fundraising, and I found a job working as a school photographer. 
It was not glamorous at all. One day, I'm traveling with one of the other school photographers, and she's just asking me questions to get to know me, and she finds out that Leanne and I were planning to be missionaries uh, in Venezuela. And she got all excited because she was a Christian, too. But within 30 seconds, she suddenly switches from this excitement to a question. She says, what's your view on alcohol? I just kind of stopped, was stunned. Like, what does this have to do with school photography and going to Venezuela? But I thought I'd do my best to answer, and I said, well, I personally don't drink, but I think, you know, it's fine to have a glass of wine or, or, you know, a beer. I suddenly received a sermon on how even one sip can lead you out of heaven. Now, I, I agreed with her. Like, alcohol has wreaked all sorts of havoc. I mean, there have been families and homes that have been devastated by alcoholism because of what it's done to someone in their health, what it's done to relationships, what it's done to people with their jobs. There have been people who've lost their lives because of drunk drivers. I'm not denying any of that. And yet, as I went into the scriptures, I saw Jesus turning water to wine and the, the master of ceremonies saying it was the best wine they'd ever had. And, and seeing Paul write to Timothy, hey, you've got some stomach problems. To help you with it, have a little bit of wine. I, I just didn't see that it was this evil. And yet, in her mind, you had to abstain from alcohol or else you would lose your salvation. You see, it can make you feel really, really spiritual because I don't do this and instead I engage in this and I do these sort of things. But when you begin to put your trust in that, you've now lost your way. And Paul is saying, guys, don't. It's going to sound good. It's going to feel good. You're going to think I'm doing so well. But you're not. Don't get caught up in class 201 and 301 and 401. You just continue with Jesus. Because as you continue with Jesus, you will get rooted in your faith and established and built up. So I need to ask you, what are you putting your trust in? What, what do you sometimes try to add to the gospel? Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I want you to know that question's not for you. I, I don't want you to get mistaken in here. The first thing you need is to understand the story of Jesus, what he did on a cross for you. I would love nothing more than for your attendance today to turn into you becoming a follower of Christ that you realize he died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And because he gave his life for you, he now invites you to give your life to follow him. But once you become a follower of Jesus, you start buying into the lie that you need to add some religious tradition, or you need to add some sort of religious practice, that you need to do these sort of things in order to make God happy. Maybe it's your good works. Maybe you're trusting inside that, yeah, yeah, okay, I've got Jesus, but I served at the food bank last week. I, I helped shovel my neighbor's walk the last time we got dumped on. I, I did this good thing, and so God is smiling down on me. Maybe for you, you're trusting in some religious tradition. Maybe you're saying to yourself, well, yeah, I was baptized as an infant. Of course I'm getting into heaven. God's great with me. Or I, I was baptized as an adult. That, that's, surely, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Or, or, you know, I, I take communion almost every week at Riverwood. Or I, I read my Bible on a regular basis. I, I do these various things. And so, therefore, God, is, he's, he's great with me. Or for you, is it maybe like Jesus and abstaining? That because I don't eat certain foods, or I don't drink certain drinks, or I avoid certain types of movies, or I do these various things, I avoid those activities. Therefore, I am holier than everyone else. If you are adding on to the gospel, 
I think God wants to challenge you today and say, you know, some of those things, they can be good. Like there's, there can be help in, in fasting from something for a time. There, that maybe for your, for your own personal health, you need to avoid certain foods. But don't let it become the center of your walk with God. To continue to follow God is to follow Christ. It's to continue with the gospel. So today, is the Holy Spirit saying to you, I want you to shed that off. Don't make it Jesus and, just make it Jesus. Continue with Jesus. Because when you continue with Jesus, God works in you to mold you and shape you into the image of his son so that you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Father God, I just want to pray right now for myself and my church family that you would help us to be people who are seeking after you and you alone. God, I just pray right now that you would help us to identify the things in our lives that we have tried to be putting our trust in, that somehow we do these things to impress you, to make you happier, and instead you are thrilled that we just know your son and are following him. Father, I pray that you would give us a clear theology, that we would have this clear vision of Jesus. And may you just continue to remove the fog that so often gets between us and the cross. May we see that our path to you isn't Jesus and these other things. It's just you. It's just Jesus. Father, I pray right now for anyone who's suffering, whether it be because of something going on at work, something in a relationship, Maybe it's, uh, it's something going on with health. I pray that in the midst of their suffering, they would see Jesus. It would help them to understand what you, Jesus, went through for them even more. And that what they're going through pales in comparison to what you did. And that it would help them be more in awe of you. It would actually lead them to worship. And the very suffering that Satan intends to knock us off course becomes the very thing that you use to help us see Jesus even clearer. Father, I just pray for anyone here today that has never placed their faith in you. Maybe they've gone to church for years. Maybe they've been playing the game. They, they've been putting on a great front. And today you are speaking loud and clear that they don't really know you, but you invite them to. I pray that right now they would confess their sin and they would put their faith fully in you, allowing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pertain to them knowing that that blood washes away their sins so that they become white as snow. They become pure in your eyes. And that today would be a day of spiritual rebirth, that the old would be gone, and that today the new comes. Heavenly Father, I pray you do in us what you need to. I just ask kindly that anything that I said that was not in, in line with you and your word would you just graciously allow all of us to forget that? The things that were of you, that were from your scriptures, that were from your heart, would you just embed those into our hearts and into our minds so that you accomplish your will in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray together. Amen.